We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to church tonight. We're glad that you're here. I hope you're glad that you're here. All right, thank you. Welcome tonight. Matthew 18, please, as we begin. Matthew 18, verses 6 through 11. We're going to look at several small paragraphs here and see what we can learn. The text in Matthew 18, starting in verse, remember verse 1 talked about the disciples asking this kind of, I'll call it, bone-headed question, who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And remember, we said that Christians don't think like that. We have been rescued from that kind of self-centered mindset. But in verse 6 through verse 11, and there's some debate about how to divide this section up, but just hang with me here on this. Uh, I don't even know that we're going to get through all these verses tonight, but It starts this way. It says, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offense comes. Verse 8, If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the everlasting fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you, for it is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven, for the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. Verse 11 You're not going to find in an NIV or in a uh, New American Standard, likely. The uh, verse is not found in the original manuscripts as they see them. There are other manuscripts, the manuscript tradition, where those verses, that verse rather, is found. I might say something about that in a moment. First section, though, offenses toward Christ's believers, verses 6 and 7. When he says, uh, whoever causes one of these ones to stumble, it'd be better for the millstone to be hung around their neck. People who come to believe in Christ are like little children in the sense of their faith, dependency on God, and their humility. Remember from the prior verses, verses 1 to 5, where the Lord brought a little child in the midst of them, and he said, unless you become like one of these children, then you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. So... Uh, you know, these children here, uh, believers as children, are not concerned about who's the greatest. Rather, they're just very happy to have a relationship with God the Father. Aren't you so glad to have a relationship with God? Uh, you know, you might say with me, look, I don't care if I have last place in heaven. I mean, if that's the case, I'll at least be greater than John the Baptist, right? Remember that? Yeah, he is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. 
the, uh, the end of, of the previous paragraph alerts us actually to what's coming. Uh, the Lord said, whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. And then notice the contrast. But the one who causes an offense to one of these little ones. You see, there are two different approaches to how little ones are treated. Um, now, I, when I read about the little ones last week, the little child who was received in the name of Christ, I stated this, that at that point, I do not believe Jesus is suddenly switching definitions of the word children. Children as representing believers, I think, is what he's talking about in verses 1 to 5. Here's a child. You have to be like that in order to be one of God's people. I think he's carrying that right through verse 5. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. So one little believer who is like a child. Uh, children as a child is representing believers. And so there's a little bit of a duality going on here where the Lord is talking about the character of believers. They demonstrate godly character that they too have received Christ in humility if they have received him in humility, if they treat kindly uh, and care for a little child like the one Jesus placed in their midst. The believers are like children. Idea is still there. The additional nuance of receptivity toward little ones, including believers in Christ, is important. So he's saying the believer has this receptivity, this gracious character toward uh, one little child like this in my name. Okay, so I do think there's something of a this metaphor and, and passing over into believers as children. It makes it difficult to understand. But I'm going to just stick with that explanation. If it seems fuzzy, let's talk about it a little bit afterwards. But here's what I want to get to in verse number 6. If there is some difficulty with what is the, exactly the child represented in verse 5, there is none in verse number 6. Because it says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me. We're not talking about merely children now. The Lord specifies that he's talking about little ones who believe in me. So he restricts the metaphor now to those who are believers, not little children, you know, not toddlers or, or you know, little guys, seven, eight, nine years old, uh, or gals, uh, but those who believe in me. The application then, uh, well, let me say it this way. That's what he's talking about, believers. However, many people have used this verse to say, if you mess with a little child, God has a special place in hell for you, right? We've often thought that. But he says, those who believe in me, he's, the meaning here is if you mess with God's children, an application that is okay to make is that if you mess with human children, then you're going to have problems with God because God is favorable to orphans and widows and children and, and that classification of people. But make sure that you understand that's an application that you may draw from this verse about harming little children. Because, because, and it's valid because of children's helplessness relatively, their relative innocence. I'm not saying children are innocent. We went over this, I remember, in, in a seminary class with um, Dr. McCune. And he's you know, very insistent about the doctrine of total depravity. But there's something different about a 
an adult who is hardened in their sin caused by depravity and a little child who is just being introduced to the world of depravity in their depravity. And they don't have a lifelong pattern of sin and evil and all that wickedness that people get themselves into. There's a relative innocence, not absolute innocence, but relatively so. So it's a great illustration or application, but it's not the meaning. The meaning is that those who cause a believer to sin are in big-time trouble. This could happen in a myriad of ways, by putting believers into impossible situations where they cannot operate in good conscience no matter what choice they make. You know, you, if you're a devilish person, you could devise, and say you're the boss in a company, you can devise some situation or scenario where your Christian employee is going to be hung up on the horns of a dilemma. Do this or lose their job or lie or do something, and you, you, you're causing them to be put in a position where they're tempted to sin. You do that, you mess with them, God's going to mess with you. That's what he's saying. Maybe a violator somehow entices a Christian into immorality, seduces one, and so on. Those who do such things are going to receive a severe punishment from God. Uh, you know, people say, I just think of this right off the top of my head, people in the media who are trying to get Christians to stumble into sin and believe wrong things and see bad things and think bad things are going to be like those who have a millstone hung around their neck. The idea of this better than clause, you know, it's better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck shows just how severe the punishment will be. I hesitate to do this, but just imagine with me for a moment if somebody did tie a millstone around your neck and throw you into the drink. How unpleasant. How terrible. What an awful way to go. You know? Um, this is a very unpleasant end. And also a very certain end. You know, you're going down. And you're only going to be, you'll be expired in a matter of moments, minutes, I guess, I suppose. The millstone was so large that a beast of burden had to be attached to it to turn it. You've probably pictured those, right? A mule or a donkey or an ox that's got this yoke and it's this like log almost and it's walking around turning this millstone, grinding this grain out. This was a cruel I'm not saying that putting the animal there was cruel, but the type of punishment of hanging somebody by a millstone and throwing them overboard, uh, that was a cruel type of punishment that was sometimes done by Gentiles who were keen to invent new and horrifying ways to kill their opponents. And we still have that today, people inventing horrific ways to punish, to cause torture and suffering. So the Lord is saying, that's so bad. It's going to be worse than that, if you can imagine how terrible for someone who causes a believer to stumble into sin. Thus the Lord proclaims what something looks like something of an Old Testament prophet here in verse number 7. He says, woe to the world. Woe is not an exclamation of wow. Woe, W-O-E, is an exclamation of severe displeasure and disaster. In fact, woe is usually a forward-looking term. Woe to you if, or, um, you know, in Revelation, 
uh, three woes are coming. Remember that? The angel in mid-heaven cries out, to, you know, woe to those on the earth for the tr- three uh, not trumpets, uh, bowls that are about to be poured out. The Lord himself had uh, felt woe and pronounced woes. So he pronounces a woe. Uh, displeasure on those offense causers and indicates a coming disaster for them. Paradoxically, notice what it says, though, in verse 7. Offenses must come. Offenses must come, but woe to the man by whom they come. So that's another woe there, second one. Paradoxically, despite the Lord's displeasure at these situations, you know what? They're inevitable. They must come but it is a woe to the man who brings them. Now, what is this all about? Well, think about the example of Jesus. The Lord himself had to be crucified, didn't he? For your sins and my sins. But the Bible says, Jesus actually says, and is recorded in Scripture, woe to that man who betrays me. Son of man will be betrayed into the hands of men, but woe to that man who did that. It would have been what? Similar. Better than for him if he had what? Never been born. In other words, like the millstone tied around the neck, it would have been better for him if he had not even existed at all. We may not like the, the fact that bad things must happen, but God has arranged and he has ordained that they will happen. We have to deal with them in the best way possible. I could wish, you could wish, that in this world there would be no injustice, there would be no unfair things that happen, there would be nothing like that, but that's not the world in which we live and it's not the world that God has decided to design. Uh, Let me give you just an illustration that might take the edge off of this difficulty when you think of why do we have to live in a world where there's all this bad stuff? I heard an interview in which a former Navy SEAL explained how SEALs' training programs uh, include punishment of the unit of men who have done nothing wrong. Maybe one person messes up, they punish the whole unit, or if nobody messes up, they lay on them extra whatever difficulties. It doesn't seem fair, does it? This is designed to test their mental resilience and to teach them to get over it and move on. Because in the SEALs' work, if something bad happens, they can't sit there and mope and complain about it. They have to get up and they have to do what they have to do in order to make the mission happen. You know, when, when, the, when one of the choppers goes down in the compound in Abbottabad, Pakistan, tough beans. Make it do. You know, you've got to make it work anyway. Uh, move ahead. That seems to be a wise training approach to deal with the real-life garbage that will come to the seals. We, we would have to say that God, however, is far wiser than the trainers in the seals program, isn't he? And he knows what is best for his people and his world and his glory and everything else. It seems reasonable, if not pleasing to us, that he has included bad things in the world in order to train his people up in the way that they need to go. In other words, there are certain perhaps elements of our character that simply could not be developed had we not faced any difficulties. 
I don't like it. You don't like it. But this is just how it is. Now, how do you handle, then, we leave that subject behind. How do we handle, and that, by the way, is just one partial explanation. We can talk about the greater glory to God, the greater good for humanity, uh, some, you know, the, trying to justify why God allows evil and, and these things to happen. But that's one little illustration that might help. What about offenses toward yourself? Offenses toward yourself. Verses 8 and 9. If your hand or foot and if your eye. I'm not going to read all that. You're familiar with that. We've seen the idea before that if one of your body parts causes an offense, the Lord says in hyperbolic language, make sure you understand that. This is hyperbole that you should cut it off. We saw this already in Matthew 5, 29 and 30. In other words, if you sin, if you break the law of God and so on, you need to do something about that. Do you remember what that was that you need to do? Well, what it cannot mean is self-mutilation. Okay, why? Self-mutilation cannot solve your sin problem. Cutting off body parts does not change the heart of a person. Cutting off a hand or a foot or gouging out an eye does not circumcise the heart. Heart circumcision is kind of a cutting thing, isn't it? But it's not with hands. It's in the heart, you know, work by God's Spirit to regenerate us. What it does mean, if it doesn't mean self-mutilation, what it does mean is that you deal with sin with extreme prejudice. You know that phrase? With uh, How do you define that phrase, with extreme prejudice? I mean... It's, almost, it's like a legal term, isn't it, or something? Or it's not, not exactly. You might dismiss a case with or without prejudice, but yeah, what it means is you go after it. You take drastic measures. You don't hold back. You don't go by half measures. You handle sin in your life drastically. Whatever it reasonably takes to remove the sin, to cut out the opportunities, to refocus your attention on holy things, whatever, you do it. You do it. Because that's what cutting out is. It's, you know how drastic, how, how, rather how deadly it is, therefore how drastic your measures need to be in order to handle sin. It doesn't go to the level of being a monk or a nun because retreating to the monastery does not circumcise the heart, right? It doesn't change your heart. You take your heart with you. You know, you, you, you leave one place and you go to another to find greener pastures, and guess what? You find that you yourself are there and you've soiled the pasture already, <laughs> you know? Yes, yes. Well, why, why do you do this drastic measures then, or these drastic measures? Because allowing sin to fester in your life means that you're not going to enter into eternal life. Why? Because believers don't live like that. They don't live in sin all the time. The penalty for any sin not under the blood of Christ. Did you hear that? If it's under the blood of Christ, it's taken care of. The penalty for any sin not under the blood of Christ is so severe that it would be better to go to heaven missing an eye, a hand, a foot, a leg, or whatever than to go to hell with all your parts. Again, hypothetically speaking here, or hyperbolically speaking, the only way you really go to heaven is by repenting of sin and trusting the Savior, which trust, when it's genuine, has built in the right kind of repentance. Um, 
And by the way, although I've talked about drastic measures, do you know what the foundation of all those drastic measures has to be? Faith. You have to be trusting in God. I've struggled with sin in my life over the 30, hold on a second, seven years of being a believer. (laughs) Uh, You, perhaps, as well. And you don't really, I've observed myself, others, make progress until you really believe that God is helping you and will help you to come overcome that sin. If you think you're going to do it on your own strength in some kind of, you know, Ironman uh, triathlon, you know, super fitness program or whatever, you're not going to do it. It's not going to work. You must trust in Christ. You must believe in him. Now, finally, uh, bear with me a couple of moments, please. Uh, Finally, I want to talk about this last section in verses 10 to 11. So we've talked about causing offenses toward others, offenses toward yourself. But what about this, despising other Christians in your heart? You're not causing them to stumble. It's It's in a way causing yourself to stumble. But you're looking at them as if they're less than they are. Take heed that you... Do not despise. This is to look down upon. To, um, and then this is another sin that needs to be cut off. By the way, if you, you know, notice, could I say it this way? If you notice your brain is sinning, cut it out, for it's better for you to enter into eternal life without a brain than to go to hell with a brain. Yes. If you're misusing it, so how, how do you do that? Obviously. You know, that makes the point clear that we're not talking about self-mutilation. You have to have a change of mind. You have to have God transform your mind in accordance with his word. Um, Not only doing something to one of these little ones is a problem, but thinking and acting toward them is an issue that we need to watch. Thinking uh, toward them or how we behave towards someone. Do you look down on and scorn other Christian people? because of some reason? Do you hold someone in contempt or have an aversion to someone? Do you think that all Christians deserve contempt? Perhaps if you're an atheist, you would think that. Um, or you know, some other religion. Do you treat some in an unkind way or a way that lacks graciousness? That's the idea here of do not despise one of these little ones. Don't despise them. They are children of our Heavenly Father like you. Now, I'm not saying that means they're believers, but they are men made in the image of God or women made in the image of God. How can you curse one of them? You know, you bless God with your mouth out of this side and then you curse them with the, out of that side, James talks about. They will stand before him as judge and give an account of themselves. So will you. Now, the text here does not jump to future judgment like I just did, which seems natural enough to do, but instead what Jesus says is, he doesn't say, don't despise them because you're going to face God as judge. What does he say in verse 10? Take heed you not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you, here's the reason, not because of future judgment, but because... Their angels always see the face of my Father in heaven. Have you ever been mystified by that verse, what that means? The motivation for not looking down on other believers is this. There are angels 
who are looking out for God's people. Now, it's too much on the basis of this text to ascertain that there's some huge doctrine of guardian angels. You know, people talk about guardian angels, and everybody has one, and mine works overtime because I'm a klutz, and yours works, you know, it's got an easy job and all that. This, this, you know, it's a nice kind of imaginary idea, but it's not what the scriptures uh, justify us to believe. So there's not a doctrine of individually assigned guardian angels here for each person. But there is something here about angels. After all, angels are ministering spirits, Hebrews 1.14 says, sent forth to minister to those who are heirs of salvation. Okay, you can look that up later, Hebrews 1.14. What I would say is not, individual, not an individual angel has, has a concern for an individual person or an assignment that way, but angels, plural, are watching out for believers, plural, generally. Angels serve God and believers, and God sends them to do things to assist his people from time to time. Angels serve generally, not specifically, as far as we're told in Scripture. Angels exist. Now, of course, there's, you know, Gabriel's a messenger angel, and Michael's the chief prince of the people of Israel. You know, we understand that stuff, but not on the individual human level are we ever told this. Angels exist to serve God and God's people. And so the Lord says, these ones see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What does that mean? Have you ever thought about that? Is it just that they're there gazing on God and, you know, how wonderful? I think it's more than that. They could certainly do that and and behold the glory of God. If they could actually see it, they might have to have their shades on so they... They don't get blasted by the light of the glory of God. But um, I think it means something like this. They are intently awaiting the Lord's any command to help his people. They sit with rapt attention on the teacher in the classroom, ready at any moment to help a believer in the nick of time in the time of need. Daniel was praying and Gabriel came to him and said before, I mean it was before he was finished praying, before you asked, I answered you. Think of that. They're sitting there with rapt attention on the Father, waiting for one, could I say, symbolic move of his eyebrow. Go there. Do that. You know what to do. They stand at the immediate ready to intervene if God commands them to do so. Thus, you should not despise others, for an angel may come to help that person, which might mean that he comes to oppose you. You see that? You don't mistreat them because there's angels up there waiting to help them. We're talking about little children, right? Children as as believers here, little ones. Um, now, I'm not sure how all that works, but I don't care to find out on the negative side anyway <laughs> myself. Uh, pray God keep us from the frustrations and the aversions and the difficulties that we come up with against other people because we don't want to be guilty of this. And I just mentioned this too, the angel's attentiveness to God 
is an example for us. Are we as attentive to the words of God as those angels who are waiting for the word to go? Thank God for his care. He never leaves us nor forsakes us. If he withholds the help of an angel, it is in accordance with his good and wise plan. But if he wants to send help, he could do so in an instant. Do you not think that I could ask the Father and he would send a legion or 12 of angels to assist me? But thus it must be. And so the Lord went through with the crucifixion without the help of the angels that he could have called for. He could have called 10,000 angels, but he died alone without help. By himself, he made an end of our sins. Verse 11 we mentioned is not found in some copies of your scripture, but uh, no matter, for we know that it's true. Verse 11 says, For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. Um, It's found in Luke 19.10 for sure. We see it there. And we, we uh, don't have to concern ourselves too deeply about whether it should be here or not. It's, it's, they make a likely you know, case that this was inserted by some well-meaning scribe who had memorized what the Scripture said, but he had memorized Luke instead of Matthew. Be that as it may, we can easily imagine how it parallels the angelic help. Here's how. If God sees one lost person he wants to save that one, he will see to that salvation by, by seeking that lost one even sending an angel to guide him. I think of um, Cornelius, you know, an angel comes to him and says, here, you send for Peter and bring him here. God sent an angel to help Cornelius in his situation. Now, note, please, when I say what I just said, I am not suggesting that an angel comes to help the person in a visible fashion. He may come through another person. He may appear as a person. Remember, Hebrews says something about that. We see some of that in the Old Testament. Genesis 19, 18 and 19, for example. An angel may do some things unseen or behind the scenes. We simply do not know. But it seems clear to me that the vast majority of angelic ministry is unseen. Some was seen in Bible times, but verifiable occurrences of it today are simply not found. Somebody might say, I think it was an angel. Well, you can't be sure, but... Thank God who sent whatever help, whether it was a person, an angel, or, you know, uh, something else at just the right moment of time to save your life or whatever the situation is. So do not despise because you've got this angelic ministry. Think of the Lord and how he had to go through that suffering, um, you know, despite uh, it being unfair and unjust. But it had to be that way. But God does does send us... uh, to send us help and uh, watch over us. Make sure you're dealing with sin in a way that is um, with extreme prejudice. Okay? Don't give in to it. Don't let it get the better of you. It is deadly. So we pick up a few of these thoughts from these verses. I hope that's helpful to you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for tonight. I pray that your hand will watch over us and guide us by your spirit. And if 
If any of us do need some angelic help, send it right away, we ask. We believe what your word says. We don't know exactly how all of it works, and we can't see with our limited uh, eyesight, which is almost blind compared to uh, the angels or to you, uh, besides a few uh, wavelengths of electromagnetic radiation that we see as different colors. There's so much more to be seen. And thank you for revealing some of that to us in your word by way of words that our minds could comprehend. Help us to be faithful. Help us to follow the directives in this text of Scripture. Help us not to cause others to stumble or to despise them or to cause ourselves to stumble into sin. In Jesus' name, amen. Good night to those of you online. Thank you for participating this evening, and have a good night. God bless you. Good night.